0: And I'm
1: Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, 2017.
0: Coming up, an interview with science writer Travis Christofferson, whose new book illuminates a promising blend of old and new perspectives on cancer. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
1: Researchers from Carnegie Mellon University have identified two groups of neurons that can be turned on and off to alleviate the movement-related symptoms from Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is caused when the dopamine neurons that feed into the brain's basal ganglia die and cause the basal ganglia to stop working, preventing the body from initiating voluntary movement. The basal ganglia is the main clinical target for treating Parkinson's disease, but currently used therapies do not offer long-term solutions. The research group used optogenetics, a technique that turns genetically tagged cells on and off with light. They targeted two basal ganglia neuron cell types in a mouse model for Parkinson's disease. They found that by Elevating the activity of one type of neuron relative to the other, they were able to stop abnormal neuronal behavior in the basal ganglia and restore movement for at least four hours, significantly longer than current treatments, such as deep brain stimulation and pharmaceuticals. Although the study was performed in a mouse model of Parkinson's, it could provide the basis for new experimental treatment protocols. The results were published in the journal Nature Neuroscience.
0: Weightlifters and other athletes have an almost obsessive fixation on getting enough protein, which is probably way too much. But it turns out that other animals have a way to decide when and how much protein they need to eat. After all, protein is an essential component of our food, and its intake should be well-regulated. A group of neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins University identified a group of neurons in the brain of fruit flies that tells the fly to eat protein. Over the past decade, scientists have identified some of the cellular mechanisms that tell cells what nutrients are required and when, but this is the first study showing that a specific region of the brain controls protein intake. The researchers shut down specific types of neural circuits, revealing that dopamine pathways—those are reward pathways—were crucial for protein preference. Then, the location of these neurons was identified using special staining methods. And finally, flies were starved for protein and showed increased activity in these neurons compared to flies that were fed. These experiments conclusively identified the circuit regulating protein consumption. Flies, like many of us, strongly prefer sugar to other food types. But when deprived of protein, the activity of this neural circuit overrides the sweet tooth. So it does double duty, ensuring the flies get enough protein and that they don't just pig out on sugar instead. Hmm, I'm forced to wonder why I don't have that same circuitry. This study was published last week in the journal Science.
1: Scientists at the Australian National University say that the early Earth was likely to be barren, flat, and almost entirely underwater with a few small islands. This is based on their analysis of tiny mineral grains as old as 4.4 billion years. The team came to this conclusion by studying zircon mineral grains that were preserved in sandstone rocks in the Jack Hills of Western Australia. It is thought that these are among the oldest fragments of the earth ever found. The zircons are formed by melting older igneous rocks rather than sediments. Melted sediments are characteristic of major events like continental collisions, so the lack of such markers indicates that things were quite mellow during that early period of earth's history and how far back are we talking perhaps the first 700 million years or more after earth was formed that is so far back that there have been no surviving rocks found from that early period so other clues are used to try to determine what things were like back then such as trace elements of zircon The lead researcher of this study described the zircon grains that eroded out of the oldest rocks as like skin cells found at a crime scene that provide detectives information of what happened when there were no witnesses. The study, titled Formation of Hadean Granites by Melting of Igneous Crust, is published in the journal Nature Geoscience.
0: Among the most mysterious and exotic objects in the universe— Black holes tantalize everyone that learns about them. These dark beasts are one of the few phenomena in the cosmos where the known laws of physics and general relativity break down. Black Holes, the Other Side of Infinity, is a full-dome show at the Fisk Planetarium that explores the power and grace of these cosmic beasts. There's a 30-minute film followed by a 30-minute related science talk. The show takes place this Thursday, May 11th, from 7 to 8 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium on the CU campus. See their website for more details. Foster's gives you cancer. are listening to how on earth the KGNU science show i'm beth bennett last month i spoke with travis christofferson whose new book tripping over the truth provides an historical overview of our war with cancer and why we are not winning it he discusses old and new data which provide an alternative mechanism for the development of cancer and some new ways to fight it welcome to the show travis we're talking with author Travis Christofferson. Did I say that right?
2: That's right. That's correct.
0: Okay, great. Who is the author of a recently, fairly recently published book, Tripping Over the Truth, in which he discusses a really fascinating alternative theory as to the causal modality behind cancer. So let's start off by talking a little bit about exactly what cancer is. So maybe you can talk about that briefly, Travis.
2: Sure, the primary feature of cancer is uncontrolled growth, and that's the what causes the pathology. And there's six hallmark features of cancer that are very well known. and you know the primary re- the primary reason that it, it's pathological is just because cells lose the controls, the normal checks and balances of division, and begin dividing uncontrollably. and the the predominant theory for that that's that's been around for fifty plus years is called the somatic mutation theory that states, that this state of uncontrolled growth is caused by this sort of series of mutations to key oncogenes. Genes, those are just genes that cause cancer. And these genes are the genes that are responsible for controlling the, the cell cycle, the division of cells. So when those genes get damaged or mutated, it sort of rewires a cell towards uncontrolled growth.
0: And then, of course, that uncontrolled growth can produce a tumor in place, which can then spread to other parts of the body if it's a malignant tumor.
2: That's right. and that that's the the part that that is fatal that kills ninety five percent of people is that part, the what they call metastasis, the spreading
0: and so people used to think, I myself thought for years and years that there were certain key mutations that had to occur in cancer. And then this was all kind of put to rest by some recent sequencing results from a, a really massive project. Can you tell us about that genome cancer genome project? Right.
2: Yeah, that's what everybody thought, that there was a series of mutations for each type of cancer that would be its cause. And all the research leading up, you know, the 70s and 80s and early 90s led researchers to believe that because they noticed cancer didn't just appear. It sort of went through this series of graded steps. And the research hinted that each one of these steps would be underpinned by a specific uh, genetic mutation, like cervical cancer and colon cancer goes through these defined steps. So when the technology finally progressed to the point where we could actually sequence the entire genomes of cancer cells, and this was on the heels of the the Human Genome Project, Um, we were able to do that and look at the entire genomic profile of cancer cells and find all of the mutations. And this nice, tidy signature of mutations was not there. In fact, it was so much more chaotic than anybody had expected that Researchers are kind of scrambling to redo the somatic mutation theory, and all these new sort of alternative theories have popped up as an explanation of cancer, because the way it looks now is that there's absolutely no way the cancer can be an exclusively genetic disease.
0: And this is a really interesting footnote on the process of science to me, that that you do a really good job of laying out in the book like all the personalities of people and the story behind their research that is that people hang on to a theory that they have been working on for years and years and, you know, bend over backwards trying to twist the data to fit or or twist the theory to fit the new observations, the new data, instead of seeing...
2: That struck me, too, as I went back through the research and, you know, this has been going on Ever since science started. And and Max Planck, the the physicist, has a famous quote about that. I won't get it right exactly, but it's new new theories, or old theories don't die. They only die when the people that install them (laughs) die. So it's not new. I mean, these sort of things. And when you look at it, you know, there's whole people's lives are invested in these theories. Textbooks are written on them. Grant money depends on them. All the technology in the labs, the sequencing machines depend on getting more money to keep operating. So it's really not surprising that these things don't change overnight.
0: Right. So we can, we can stop with the, the traditional theory there and go on to the, some of the newer explanations, which I find really interesting because they're so, they have such explanatory power and they're so little known. So tell us a little bit about the Warburg effect.
2: So, yeah, the Warburg effect was discovered by Otto Warburg, a famous German biochemist, in 1924. He was... Um, Nobel Prize-winning biochemist, probably today is regarded as one of the the, the best biochemists of the 20th century, um, and he wanted cancer to be sort of his namesake. and He turned to it in 1924, and right away he noticed this sort of striking metabolic abnormality of the cancer cell, that it generates lactic acid in the presence of oxygen and consumes tons of glucose. This is called fermentation, and there was no good explanation for why the cancer cells were doing this. So Warburg later on in his career contended the reason why, and this was what he said was the prime cause of cancer, was there's damage to the respiratory ability of the cancer cell, and the, and it shifts, the prime causes a shift to this sort of antiquated method of energy generation. Um, and this is today this is simply called the Warburg effect, and it's very well known. You know, oncologists have been staring at this for a very long time. When you look at a PET scan, it's just a dramatic illustration of what the Warburg effect is. A PET scan is, is generated by injecting radio-labeled glucose into patients, and then over time this glucose just concentrates within the tumor cells, and that's what you visualize. So it's been known for a long time that cancer cells have this metabolic quirk that they have a, a very um, uh, you know, a huge appetite for sugar, and they don't like oxygen. Where normal cells will generate 90% of their energy with oxygen, cancer cells do not.
0: And I find it really interesting that this is a well-known diagnostic. Like you said, people have been using PET scans for years to show the extent of tumorigenesis, but the obvious correlation between the the metabolism of the cancer cell and that ability to use PET scans kind of escaped them.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, you're right. It just you know when when DNA was discovered in 1954, it just and it was known that there was mutations in the DNA of, of cancer cells. All eyes switched to the genetics of cancer. And this sort of, you know, old metabolic abnormality kind of got pushed to the wayside. And But, you know, recently, the last five years, again, it's come to the forefront. It's probably, along with immunotherapies, uh, metabolism is definitely the hottest topic in cancer biology right now.
0: Yeah, and both of those, the immunotherapy and the metabolics, can um, tie into the epigenome. And, and I've noticed that with lots of diseases, you know, we initially thought when the, the genome was first uh, finished in the, the first pass, anyway, in the early 2000s, that, oh, we'll know all the answers to genetic diseases and complex diseases, yeah. but we don't. And so now we're going, oh, well, it's the epigenome and all these modifications right. to the genome. So uh, I know that you talk about that in your book, too. So tell us what's going on with epigenetic therapies.
2: Yeah, you, you, you actually characterize that very good. When, when Clinton announced, 2000, he announced the first rough draft of the human genome. And, you know, he, the way he grandized it, it's like, okay, we have this map that is going to lead to the curing of every known disease. If, of every known disease. So that's, that's the power we thought, just knowing that the genetic code would give us. And now we know that's not even remotely the case, that, that there's very, very few purely genetic diseases that that come from genetic, um, you know, the differences in sequence of our DNA. Most diseases are way more complex than that. They're the result of epigenetics, and that's just what the different expression of genes. So some genes get turned up, some genes get turned down, and over time, this results in in the manifestation of pathology or, or disease process. And now we're beginning to realize that cancer primarily is driven by epigenetic changes. So genes that promote the Warburg effect that cause sugar to be metabolized in, the, in, in um, the cancer cell are done by perfectly normal healthy genes they're just upregulated and so now we're beginning to see that all these genes that drive uh, the tumorigenic process are really driven by just turning down of tumor suppressor genes and turning up of um, cancer promoting genes and they're not even mutated they're just perfectly like, functional genes so Yeah, the epigenome is absolutely fascinating, and it's the new frontier of research.
0: So for our listeners that are just tuning in, you're listening to KGNU's How on Earth Science Show, and I'm speaking with Travis... Christopherson, who recently released a book on alternative theories uh, explaining the causes of cancer. The book is Tripping Over the Truth, and we'll go back to talking about epigenetic modifications that cause cancer. And this is cool because it kind of allows those somatic mutation theory people to hang on to their ideas while these genes aren't just, they're not mutated, they're just differentially regulated. So are they coming up with therapies specifically for some of these metabolic genes?
2: Yeah, they are. And this is, right, just because we've just recently characterized this, that they're just coming out with them. Um, There are, you know, of course, pharmaceutical companies are jumping on this, and there are certain drugs that will modify the epigenome. And the first kind of class of these drugs um, inhibit the methylation of DNA, which is an epigenetic regulator. And so they sort of, you know, they're not targeted. They're very... Global kind of repressive drugs, but they've you know there's tremendous reason for enthusiasm from these first round of sort of epigenetic inhibitors, and they're only going to get better and more targeted as we go on. And and ironically, even simple dietary manipulations, like something called the ketogenic diet, produces a endogenous energy compound called beta-hydroxybutyrate when you switch over to burning fat. And that molecule, in addition to being just an energy substrate, is a very powerful epigenetic modifier.
0: I'm glad you raised that ketogenic diet because I wanted to talk about that. You have a lot of stories in your book of, from individual patients that use that diet to control and even get rid completely of their tumors. And I just wondered how that worked.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. That's again sort of the the first idea when you look at cancer as a metabolic disease and that's feeding off sugar. You know, the the one of the first therapies that comes to mind is this thing called the epi or the ketogenic diet that's been around since the 20s. It was actually standard of care for epilepsy in the 20s. Um and it's got very, you know, very interesting medicinal properties for a host of different diseases, but cancer the idea is simple. It the diet switches away from carbohydrates. And replaces them with fat, so you break, drive down blood glucose and replace it with something called ketone bodies that replace glucose as an energy substrate. So it's got this very seductive kind of, um, you know, people understand why the therapy itself, and there, we're beginning to get um, some data that, uh, about how it works. There's a, a young MD in Istanbul that's using the ketogenic diet along with other metabolic therapies with something called glycolytic inhibitors, which further inhibit the use of, of sugar, blood sugar by the cancer cells. And he's using hyperbaric oxygen in addition to standard-to-care therapy. And when you sort of bolt on these, medical, these metabolic therapies to standard-to-care, he's done these retrospective studies on pancreatic cancer and lung cancer, and he's seen absolutely tremendous results. The lung cancer study, I think they looked at 44 patients. And median survival for stage 4 lung cancer is 8.6 8. months with standard of care. When you put on these metabolic therapies, um, it went to 43 months. So four, wow. over a 400% increase. And that's I with pretty it.
0: low-tech therapies.
2: Pretty low-tech, yep. yep. And
0: so what, what exactly is the hyperbaric oxygen doing?
2: That, that has been shown preclinically to work synergistically with the ketogenic diet. And when you put a patient in this state of ketosis, you're starving the cancer cell of glucose, and so they have trouble making antioxidants. Mm. And the way radiation works is by creating free radicals. Radiation is is ionizing radiation, kills by generating free radicals. And so hyperbaric oxygen just can be viewed as sort of a gentler way to administer Mm, radiation because you generate free radicals, and that kills the
0: cancer cells. Right. So these are great therapies, but, you know, the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make a lot of money off of them. So is that one reason why it hasn't been widely publicized?
2: That, that is a big issue right now with, with the FDA and cancer therapies in general is the burden of regulation on these sort of things. And the FDA right now, of course, requires a, a Phase three double-blind placebo-controlled trial which we know costs from drug conception to approval, cost about a billion dollars. So there's no way something that's essentially free like the ketogenic diet or cheap like hyperbaric oxygen will ever get the money to get shepherd through that burden of proof. So there's sort of a backlash now between even some of the original pioneering chemotherapy doctors, you know, the pioneered um, the original protocols for Hodgkin's disease and so forth, they're saying that this this regulatory burden is just completely crazy. We need to go to where if we see an objective response with phase one or two two data, that should be enough to where oncologists can incorporate those therapies into the clinic, especially if they're safe, which these are. Right,
0: right. So now I'd like to get into a little sort of speculation. Uh, so we've kind of tossed out the the somatic mutation theory, and now we talk about these genes being epigenetically upregulated or downregulated, and, and that effect of turning genes off and on will cause these cells to alter their metabolism and start growing out of control and exhibit all the, the, the characteristics that we know of cancer. But why does all this happen in the first place? What's the, the first step in the process or the first initial steps?
2: That, that's a beautiful question. That, that's a wonderful... And that, that is still you know, an ongoing focus of research. If, if you look at the metabolic model, the trigger to do that is damage to mitochondria. And, and the mitochondria um, have a very intimate relationship with, with all your chromosomes, all your DNA. They talk back and forth constantly. So we do know that there's, when mitochondria are damaged, they send out this, what's called a retrograde signal to the nucleus, which is just an epigenetic signal. And that affects a broad swath of genes. You can have, um, you know, tr- transcription factors that affect up to 15% of the entire genome. So the mitochondria by themselves are able to affect a huge epigenetic response. And it looks it, this this, when, when this happens, you see an upregulation of all these cancer-promoting genes that we talked about. So right now, that looks like one of the primary culprits, but there could be other things that are triggering this this you know sort of subroutine within the DNA to get activated. But that's a great question. It's an ongoing focus of research.
0: And that makes a lot of sense intuitively because the mitochondria are where oxygen is utilized to break glucose down completely. In other words, not to have that fermentation pathway take place. So if the mitochondria are damaged, then the cell would default to fermentation. But does that mean that if the mitochondria gets sick they're really trying to signal that send that retrograde signal that you talked about to the nucleus to say hey it's time for cell suicide and then the cell for some reason doesn't kill itself and then goes on into that cancer track
2: that's right yeah exactly right normally a cell the the right thing to do is is to commit what you said cell suicide it's called apoptosis and that's usually what happens 99% of the time when a cell becomes very damaged, it will go through that cell suicide process. But for some reason, when this retrograde response gets stuck on chronically, all of a sudden you can get this sort of bypassing of the normal apoptotic signals, and the cell will continue to go down this cancer pathway and just this kind of smoldering, you know, worsening of, of all the hallmark features. So, yeah, it takes a very, I think, specific set of conditions to get, to get cancer to grow. I mean, think about it we're, we're composed of 50 trillion cells and so it just takes one cell to go down this path to generate cancer. So our normal checks and balances are extremely efficient that it happens at all. Um you know, we should it seems like we should have cancer popping up all the time but we don't. So it takes a very unique set of conditions to get this to happen. And and that goes back to well if you can alter these conditions within your body, which you can, you know, from a preventative aspect, you could probably, you know, intervene on that process. Before it even starts,
0: right. So it's scary to think that all of us listening to this show probably have a bunch of those cells headed down that trajectory. So maybe we should all start eating a ketogenic diet and visiting hyperbaric oxygen chambers in our future.
2: I think that could be part of that in the future. And, and there's a big debate about you know whether a ketogenic diet should be sustained or not. And I'll leave that up to the nutritionists. But if you could do it periodically maybe once, once or twice a year go into ketosis and get in a hyperbaric chamber, then maybe that'd be, a, you know, just like we change the oil in our car, just a wonderful way to prevent disease.
0: Right, right. Well, hopefully people will read your book because there's so much more to the book that we didn't get a chance to touch on, and we're running out of time. So I want to thank you so much, Travis, for talking to us today.
2: Oh, wonderful. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Travis Christofferson talking about his new book, Tripping Over the Truth. The metabolic theory of cancer he discussed offers the possibility of novel treatments and perhaps better outcomes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett and engineered by Joel Parker.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Joe Jackson.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter